As the Apostle Paul's work progressed in Ephesus and the faith took root, another dynamic was at play. The merchants who made their living through the worship of the goddess Diana were suffering and their livelihoods were being threatened. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. As it did elsewhere, opposition to the Christian message reared its ugly head as the merchants and the people of the city of Ephesus rose up to defend their livelihoods and their traditions against the upheaval the gospel of Jesus Christ generally brings. Listen now as Dr. Boyce examines the demented power of idol worship in the ancient world and how the fledgling movement of Christianity brought that power to an amazing end. At the end of our last study of the first half of Acts 19, I summed up by showing the remarkable success that Paul's preaching had in Ephesus. He stayed there for a considerable period of time, as we saw, for two years. He taught regularly, every day, as the text indicates, and as the margin of the Western text indicates, perhaps from 11 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon. That's a great deal of teaching. It was teaching by an apostle, and God certainly blessed it because many became Christians, and as we're told in that passage, the Word of God spread from there throughout all the Roman province of Asia. Ah, yes, but we also saw that it was not without opposition. The second half of this chapter and the verses we're going to look at, and we see how a very great and strong movement of opposition developed there in this city, because what was taking place, what was being accomplished by the preaching of the gospel was very disruptive as the preaching of the gospel always is. Now this is a marvelous section. William Ramsey, whom I've referred to on other occasions because of his very perceptive study of the time and conditions in which the Apostle Paul operated, said of this section of the chapter that it is the most instructive picture of the society of the ancient world that has come down to us. That's particularly striking in Ramsey's work because in his study of the first half of the chapter, he's not at all impressed. He just doesn't understand some of those things, and he says so. He says, I just frankly don't understand what this is about. It doesn't seem to be at the same level of Luke's other historical writing. But when he comes to the second half, he says this is most instructive because we see the attitudes and the concerns of the people of an ancient city in a dramatic way. Some people have been so impressed with this that they've said, well, Luke must have been there. He must have been an eyewitness of these things. Actually, Luke probably wasn't. We saw earlier that he indicates his presence in the narrative by using the word we whenever he is present. So he'll say, for example, we traveled here and we did that. And then when he's not present, he says he or they. And this is one of those sections where it's speaking in the third person and not in the first person. This is he or they. As a matter of fact, in the next chapter, Luke comes into it again. So probably he wasn't there, and yet he must have had some kind of first-hand information because this is certainly a dramatic picture 
of what life was in the ancient world, the kind of society into which these early preachers, Paul and the others, went with the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now what emerges here, aside from the incidental details that are of such interest to historians, is the great idolatry of the time, the intensity with which the ancients worshipped idols. We just hardly have a sense of that today. We know that it was true. We go to museums and we see the sculpture there that represents the ancient gods of the Roman or the Greek worlds, but we just don't have any real personal or emotional understanding for how intense or how pervasive this worship of idols was. Everywhere you went in the Roman world, there were temples and shrines, even in the homes, little gods and goddesses, just everywhere. And it was a big, big business, and in a city like Ephesus, it was an extremely big business indeed. We saw last time when we were talking about Ephesus that it was the center of the cult of Artemis, or Diana, as the Romans called her. In Roman lore, Diana was the goddess of the hunt. She symbolized virginity, but here in this ancient eastern metropolis, Artemis, which is what she was called there, actually symbolized fertility. The little idols that represent Artemis and which have been found today, not the silver ones, of course, they were too valuable, but ones made out of terracotta and other materials show a rather grotesque, multi-breasted female figure because that symbolized the fertility and naturally here, as in the other Greek and Roman temples, a great deal of the work that went on was cultic prostitution. And here was a great business and a great center for this idol worship of Artemis that had such a hold on the people of the day. This was the condition of the world at the time of the advent of Jesus Christ. And yet, remarkably, within 300 years, that is, as Christianity went forward, this great idolatry of the ancient world virtually disappeared. That's not the same thing, of course, as saying that the world became Christian in a true or spiritual sense. Of course, it did not. But the idols were abolished. This just ended, and the sole reason for it, there were no other reasons. This was not a period in which philosophy advanced or medicine advanced or any of the things that we look to as evidences of our great civilization today. None of those things were happening. The sole factor that changed this in the ancient world was the advance of Christianity, which, of course, is what we should expect, because the Bible itself says, the entrance of thy word giveth light. And where Christians went forward with the message of the gospel and with the scriptures, the light of God shining from those pages just burst into the darkness. And even though people were not in every case, perhaps not even in the majority of cases, really regenerated or born again, the light of the gospel penetrated so forcefully that many of these dark practices simply disappeared. Now what happened here in Ephesus in this riot described in Acts 19 verses 23 and following is obviously a proof of Paul's success. Paul had come to the city and had simply made a 
tiny little beginning with a few people meeting perhaps somewhere in a home, none of this would have happened because it would have had no impact upon the society of Ephesus at all. The fact that there was a riot, all these people got stirred up in defense of Artemis, great Artemis of the Ephesians, that itself is proof of how successful Paul and the early preaching of the gospel had been. There had been a reform in the Christian community, first of all. That is, not only had the gospel spread so that many had become Christians, but the Christians had gotten serious about being Christians. Maybe that is where we ought to start when we begin to think in terms of social reform today, a reformation. That is, with the transformation of Christians. Here were Christians that had come so much under the power of the Spirit of God through the preaching of the Word that they were convicted of sin, confessed it, and then actually brought out and destroyed those things which were antithetical to Christianity. The very superstitious city. They had these magic scrolls where incantations and such things were written. And they were very valuable. The figure given there is 50,000 drachmas. It's hard to put a dollar figure on that. If we do, it comes out to be something like $5 million, which seems unbelievably high and probably is. But nevertheless, it was a lot of money, which is why Luke records it. There were people who as we would say, actually laid their religion on the line. In this case, they laid it in the fire and allowed these things to be destroyed because they were serious about following hard after Jesus Christ. And then what followed, you see, after the Christians got serious was an impact in the society so strong that this riot was the inevitable reaction on the part of those who resented the impact on life as they knew it. Now, it was an impact on the business. That's where people hurt, we're told, in their pocketbooks, and that's what happened. When the Christians got serious, other people got serious too. The Word of God spread widely and grew in power, verse 20, and many people, Christians certainly, and perhaps other people as well, simply lost interest in the pagan temple. Now, in Ephesus, there was what we would call a guild a guild of silversmiths, and this man Demetrius was obviously a leader in the guild. There were guilds in the Middle Ages. They were organizations of artisans. There would be guilds of leather workers who would make shoes, and guilds of people who worked with cloth who would make clothes, and people who worked with wood and fine metals and so forth. And that's what we have here. Only we're told by those who study this that in the ancient world those guilds were far more important than merely what we would call a trade union. This group obviously had the power of a union, but it was more than this. These were social things as well. I think when I read about them that probably the closest example to anything like that we have today are the mummers in Philadelphia, where you have those who get together not only for a common purpose, but do so for social reasons. Well, this is the sort of thing there was. This was a group that had a great camaraderie and certainly had a great concern in their own well-being, which was largely financial. And here was this great movement of Christianity that caused people to lose interest in the temple and therefore naturally lose interest in buying the kind of things that were sold at the temple and were often used in worship. Sometimes when they would buy these little cult 
objects, these little statues of Artemis or the temple. We're told that they'd take them up to the temple and they would offer them there as part of their worship. Might be one reason why the silver objects haven't been found, because the priests obviously would take them and melt them down. That was hard currency for them. Sometimes they'd take them home as souvenirs, just as today when you visit a foreign country, you might buy a little silver spoon that has on it a little emblem representing the country that you visited. Well, they would buy these things and take them home. And suddenly, Demetrius and the others in the trade guild noticed that their profits were slipping. Why, last year they had made so much money, they were down 18% this year, and it looked like the way things were going, they'd be down even more than that next year. And so being interested in their own well-being, they started this riot to see if they couldn't get the Apostle Paul to leave. Demetrius was very clever the way he went about it. I'm sure you recognize that as you read the passage. He talked to the silversmiths about the money because that's what concerned them. But when he began to talk to the population at large, not all of whom were silversmiths and not all of whom naturally would be harmed by the decline in the silversmiths' business, he talked not so much about financial matters as about what we would call civic pride. Everybody knows how important Ephesus is because of this great temple of Artemis. And here are these people who have come to diminish her glory and take away from her majesty. And so by that means he began to stir things up. It's worth pointing out, I think, that the same thing was happening and would continue to happen throughout the Roman Empire and was happening to give one example that has come down to us in the province of Bithynia 70 years later. That time there was a Roman governor of Bithynia whose name was Pliny. The emperor at the time was Trajan, and Pliny wrote a number of letters to Trajan to ask him in correspondence how he was to handle particular problems that came up in his province. A number of these letters deal with the Christians. Pliny said, as far as he could tell, he had examined a number of them. They didn't do anything wrong. They certainly weren't uh, subversive of the empire. They were not immoral. They didn't have any secret plots to overthrow the Caesar, except he said they do have some queer ideas about religion. And he said, I just don't know how to handle it. It's created a problem for me, said Pliny, in this respect. Because of the impact of Christianity, people have stopped going to the shrines. Now, you might say, well, why would Pliny care about that? For this reason, it became a great social problem. You see, the temples and the shrines were big business. Priests were employed, courtesans were employed, and when people stopped going, suddenly you had all these people, this main block of the population of an ancient town that suddenly were not receiving the means whereby they could support themselves. And so you had a social problem. The priests and the harlots were unemployed, and Pliny really didn't know what to do about this. Should he drive out the Christians in order that people would start coming back to the temples, start giving money, and take this social problem off his hands? Moreover, as he talks about it, the butchers seem to have been having problems because the word had gotten around that what the butchers sold was meat that had first of all been offered to the idols. And of course that was true. Sacrifices were offered to the idols. You didn't just throw the meat away. It was sold later in the stalls in the market. 
And the Christians who were becoming careful about that sort of thing at this time weren't buying it. I guess they were beginning to eat fish, which wasn't sacrificed, or perhaps they were becoming vegetarians. Pliny said, what am I to do about this? It's hurting the economy. Well, you see, that's exactly what was happening here in Ephesus as a result of Paul's business. What I want to say, I'm going to talk about it a little more as we go on, is that if our Christianity is not affecting the economy of our world, we don't have much Christianity. Now, I know we don't like that because we tend to think that our economy is the product of our Christianity. We tend to think of the Western world, at least, as being Christian and capitalistic and all of that all at the same time. And yet, what I want to point out is that when Christians live as Christians, this will have an impact on the economy of the world in which they live, and inevitably it will produce hostility as it did here. Now, let me say something about the defense of Artemis, because that is what was involved. Demetrius was the first one to do it, and you have his speech in the first paragraph, that is verses 23 to 27. And then, beginning in verse 35, the city clerk, the town clerk, does much the same thing. By this time, he was quieting down the uproar, but as he spoke, he gave many of the same arguments that Demetrius had given. How did they defend Artemis, this goddess that was worshipped so intently there in Ephesus? Well, there were two ways they did it. First of all, they made an appeal to numbers. You see what Demetrius said, you find it there in verse 27, he said, look, Artemis is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world. In other words, his first defense was to say, everyone is doing it. Now that's exactly the same thing the city clerk says later. Men of Ephesus, verse 35, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? That's the first argument. And then there's a second, except it isn't really an argument. It's just a means of defense. It is a defense by sheer emotion. This is what the crowd did. The crowd, stirred up by Demetrius and the others, stormed into the amphitheater that seated about 25,000 people, and for the space of two hours, that is almost as if they were at a football or a baseball game, shouted out with one voice again and again, great Artemis of the Ephesians, great Artemis of the Ephesians, great Artemis of the Ephesians. And they kept that up for two hours. That was an emotional moment. And it was only at the end of that period, I suppose, as their energies were beginning to be drained away slightly, that the city clerk, a very wise man who had probably waited for that moment, stood forward and called them down and then dismissed the assembly. The reason I point out those two means of defense is because I want to say that that is the way wrongdoing or error is defended in our day too. We all know the appeal to numbers. It's the classic defense of our time. It's the argument by statistics. If you can prove that enough people believe something, well then, obviously it must be true. I'm always astounded by this on television, especially in the newscasts, for example. Used to be that what you got was news. 
That is, they reported what was happening, and you'd think that television would specialize in that because at least the one thing television can do is go there and show it on the news. You say, this is what's happening. Now, maybe distorted, maybe selective, and all of that, but at least it's hard news. And yet I'm sure you've noticed on television how much lately the opinion polls have been reported as if they were hard news. My response when I hear that is always, who cares? I mean, the point is not how many people think a government figure is lying, but rather, is he lying? That's the issue, not what do you think. The people who think as they think only think as they think because of what they see on television anyway. How do they know? They don't know the people. They haven't investigated the details. It's an opinion full of sound and fury signifying nothing. But you see, we are so caught up in this idea of statistics that we think that numbers alone carry the day. Now let me put it in terms that you'll understand in the way that it's harmful. You go away from high school to college and you get on the campuses and uh, you want to live as a Christian. And what you're told is this, nobody thinks that way anymore. Now of course that isn't true because you think that way. And unless you are nobody, which you are not, then that doesn't apply to you. You ought to be able to say, well, I don't know about everybody else, but there is at least one who thinks that way. But the answer is nobody thinks that way anymore. Or if you press the point, most people don't think that way anymore. Only a small little core of bigoted, narrow, uninstructed fundamentalists think that way anymore. All the rest of us, especially those of us who are here on the college campus, are enlightened. And if you want to get ahead, well, then you better abandon that particular way of thinking and come along with the crowd. Now, that is exactly the argument that was given here in Ephesus. Everybody worships Artemis. And the point I'm making is the fact that everybody worships Artemis didn't make the worship of Artemis right. And just because you're told nobody believes that anymore or the reverse side of that, everybody's doing it, doesn't mean you ought to do it. You know how the argument goes. I know you want to have standards, but after all, you have to recognize that everything is relative. No such thing as truth today. That's just your truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. She has her truth. Everybody has their truth. So don't appeal to any standards. That means there are no standards. Do as you please. Or there is the argument. We know today science has proved it to us. Everybody knows that that men and women, after all, are just slightly advanced animals. That's the argument of evolution. You see, we're nothing more than the animals. We don't have souls. We're just like them. And so what they do, we do, what we do, they do, and it's all all right. We're all evolving upward anyway. Or there's this argument. Right now is all there is. Don't think about tomorrow. Above all, don't think about a life to come. Nobody knows anything about a life to come. Haven't you heard that? Nobody has any evidence whatsoever about a life to come, as if the Lord Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead. And there weren't any Christians around to maintain that, but that's the argument. All there is is right now. Therefore, don't be a fool and live for some far-off day or some pie in the sky by and by. Live right now. Enjoy yourself now. Get the best out of life right now and forget about a day of reckoning. Everybody thinks that way. Or how about this one? If it feels right, you know how that one ends. 
It can't be wrong. After all, it feels good. Everybody recognizes that it feels good, so do it. Can't be wrong, but feels good. It can't be wrong. Of course, it can be wrong. And many things that are defended in that way are wrong, and numbers alone don't make them right. There's the other argument. It was this defense of Artemis by emotion. You see, if you couldn't carry the day by argument, at least you could get all the people together and you could stir them up and you could say again and again for the space of two hours, great Artemis of the Ephesians. Don't we have that kind of argument in defense of the world and its ways in our day? Of course we do. That is what modern advertising is all about. You are not given reasons. It's very difficult, I know, but if you can watch television and still think at the same time you're watching it and begin to ask questions about the ads, the reasoning is absurd. Just absurd. I think of an old example from the past, and I remember it because my physics professor in high school taught me about it. When they used to sell ivory soap, they used to sell it this way, 99 and 44 100% pure, it floats. Now, you know what that meant. It meant it floats because it's 99 and 44 100% pure. None of the other soaps are pure because they don't float, folks, but ivory does. Now, of course, that isn't what it said, and that isn't true. Ivory soap didn't float because it was pure. It floated because it was filled with air bubbles. So it was lighter than the water it displaced. That's why it floated. It looked big, but you got less soap. And when they said, 99 and 44, 100% pure, it floats. It was a period between, and the first part had nothing to do with the second part. Now, many of the commercials are that way today, except that they carry emotive content as well. Sex, above all, is used to sell them. But as if that isn't enough, they sell prestige, stature, the fact that people look well at us if we do certain things or own certain things. And without thinking, you see, what they're really saying to us is this, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You must worship her. Great is the American economy. Great is the way of materialism. You must bow down at that shrine. And you know, it takes a lot of courage and thinking as well to stand up against that when, as may actually be the case, the majority of the people are going the other way. It takes a great deal of courage and thought and strength. But you know, in the final analysis, it's only the people who stand up against it that ever make a difference. The world isn't changed by the majority. The world is changed by the minority who have, well, we say, have heard a different drummer. And as Christians, we would say, are listening to a different spirit and so determined to go in that way. Well, there's the outcome. What was the outcome? Here in the context of this riot, the first outcome is that the Christians were vindicated, Paul was not attacked, and he eventually was able, without any trouble it would seem, to leave Ephesus. I guess that's important, though it seems to me probably to be somewhat incidental. It wasn't incidental to Luke, I think. Luke has recorded in some detail that at Corinth, when Gallio was in charge, he wouldn't listen to the accusations brought against Paul. 
And here in Ephesus, in the story of this riot, he records at some length, significantly, perhaps we would say out of proportion to the importance of the event, the fact that Paul and the Christians were vindicated. Those who were in charge said, these people have done nothing wrong. I say, I think that was important to Luke for this reason. If you go to the very end of the book of Acts, you find there that the apostle Paul is not dead. You might expect that that would be the way the book would end, but rather you find him in prison in Rome, undoubtedly awaiting trial. Now it may be that one of the purposes Luke had as he wrote this book was to write an apologetic for his friend. And so what he records here very carefully, though subtly, somewhat, as we would say, by use of legal precedent, examples that showed in the world leading up to the event of Paul's arrest and incarceration at Rome, different officials in the Roman Empire had declared that Christianity was no threat. Probably Luke has recorded it at length for that reason. And yet I say in the long flow of history, it's undoubtedly incidental because, as you well know, the Apostle Paul was acquitted on this occasion. He did nevertheless lose his life for the sake of his testimony to Jesus Christ. And even though the Christians on this occasion were vindicated, there have been many other times in history when they have been oppressed and even killed. That's the short end of the story. But the long end of the story is this. Christians have died for their profession. They have been willing to do it precisely for this reason that they look beyond this life to the life that is to come and they consider that what's going to happen to them in that life is far more important than anything that happens to them here. So they're willing to suffer here for the glory there. That's Christian's motivation. But because they did that, you see, Christianity triumphed and Artemis, well, it's not an exaggeration to say there is not an individual, a soul in the world today that worships Artemis. And yet everywhere there are thousands upon thousands who worship God. Now I ask the final question, it's this, what a brought about this great change? You see the world's means were to say everybody's doing it and to play upon emotions. That's how they tried to defend the false religion. What did the Christians use? The Christians did not appeal to numbers. They did not circulate a petition to see if they couldn't get 51% of the population of Ephesus to sign it, saying Artemis is no goddess, and the God of the Old Testament is the true God. They didn't do that. The Christians did not have a mass rally. They didn't get everybody there into the amphitheater to do their thing, just the way Demetrius and his crew had gotten people there to do their thing. They didn't sing emotional songs. They didn't try to carry the day by some great attack upon the emotional thinking of the population. Well, they did exactly what Jesus Christ had sent them out into the world to do. They preached the gospel, so the men and women got converted. And then once they were converted, they taught them all the things that Jesus Christ had taught them. That is, they taught them a full-orbed gospel, which included within it the doctrine of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They obeyed Jesus Christ and turned from wickedness, all of which we have seen here in the story, and then undoubtedly also in obedience to Jesus Christ, they prayed. 
You want to make an impact on the world today? You want to turn this economy upside down? You want to rechannel human efforts? It is a worthy thing to do. And it's not done by an appeal to numbers, and it's not done by emotional experience alone, though sometimes that follows, but by teaching the Word and spreading it, and testifying to it, and then obeying it, following after Jesus Christ, and praying that the same God who sent Jesus Christ will, through the power of His Holy Spirit, open blind eyes. That's what changes things. And it doesn't always take numbers. A small group can do it in the power of God. We need it today. Let's pray. Our Father, we look at the world around us and we see that often we are popular and that frightens us because all it tells us is that we are much like the world. Our Father, help us to so heed the gospel and so obey the teachings of Jesus Christ that we live differently and living differently by that very fact become a challenge to this whole world thought and economy in which we live. And bless us to that end, not for the sake of our own personal happiness or well-being here, but for the sake of those who are perishing without the gospel, that they might find it and by the work of your Holy Spirit be brought into the kingdom of your Son, the kingdom of light. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.